How should we act in the world? What's right and what's wrong? Is there even such a thing as right and wrong? These are questions that people have wrestled with for thousands of years. They're also questions that we might approach from many angles, from psychology, philosophy, theology, and even neurobiology. Eric Helzer is an associate professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and he specializes in three facets of practical wisdom, ethical behavior and moral judgment, self-knowledge, and personal agency and adjustment. He joined us for a wonderful conversation in which we discuss behavioral ethics and moral psychology, along with implications for all of us. Stay tuned for a thought-provoking discussion with Eric Helzer. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Eric Helzer, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Chris. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, so this is just so exciting. It's great to have Eric on the podcast and for a number of reasons, but one being that the topic we're going to talk about today has to do with really important things, uh, morality, character, uh, ethics, and let's just hop into this. Um, you know, I think we'll get into some of your research along the way and talk about maybe why this stuff really matters and what leaders and organizations maybe can do about it to some extent. Uh, so let's just start with kind of a big question, Eric, which is how did you get interested in the area of behavioral ethics? Uh, what does that even mean maybe? And kind of how did you get to where you are now? Sure. Um, I was trained as a social psychologist. So I went to graduate school and studied uh, social psychology in the East Coast. And from really the, the first, from the get-go, uh, questions about morality were enticing to me. I wanted to read papers about uh, the scientific study of morality. I wanted to uh, write those papers one day. Um, and you know, to me, the question about, about so I, I came up through psychology, I came up through the field of moral psychology. And then when you switch over to a business school, sort of half a joke and half not, that becomes the study of morality becomes the study of behavioral ethics. Um, there are some subtle differences between the two. But basically, if you're a moral psychologist who, who does research in a business school, you're a behavioral ethicist. So all right, wait, wait, stop. Yeah. I got to throw a flag flag on the field. All right. Let's just define stuff for the uninformed, right? What is social psychology? Good. So uh, social psychology is not clinical psychology. So we don't put people on the couch and we don't, we don't do therapy. Social psychology is the study of everyday behaviors, everyday life, uh, everyday cognition, decision-making, things like that. Anything that is sort of non-clinical um, is, is pretty much within the domain of social psychology. Cool. All right. And then you had another term, moral what? Moral psychology. So if you're, if you're a social psychologist who studies how people think about morality, how they make decisions uh, in moral contexts, how they reason about dilemmas, right? How they, how they sort through their values. Uh, all of those are questions that a moral psychologist would ask and would study. All right. now, do, do the moral psychologists ever get together with the philosophers on these topics? Occasionally, and it's not always pretty. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, after, after I finished grad school, I did a two-year postdoc 
uh, at Wake Forest University, and I was part of an interdisciplinary project with philosophers, psychologists, and theologians. And the, the whole purpose of the project was to revive the study of moral character, because uh, moral character was studied by psychologists for a long time, and then in about the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, the interest in moral psychology started to wane, and uh, largely because of social psychologists like me, um, people really put a lot of emphasis on how situations shape the, the ethical or, or moral things people do, and uh, it was out of fashion to talk about how individuals themselves shape those things. I love that. So you've got psychology, right? you got behavioral um, stuff you were talking about once you get from psychology into the business field, it really becomes about behavioral ethics. Right. And could you tell me the difference between, hey, so if I'm a psychologist, and I'm thinking about psychology things, but what what's the switch that flips when I'm a behavioral ethicist and thinking about behavioral ethics? I think there's a couple of things that, that, that are different. So I think the word behavioral is, is, is important, right? So it's the study of how people behave, right, when they are faced with situations or questions that involve ethics. So there is much more of an emphasis, I would say, on what people do or say or think, right? So what the actual behaviors are that are relevant uh, to their ethical choices. Um, and I think the other thing is that, that, the switch from morality to ethics, right, is, is, is this idea that in the business realm, in, in a professional realm, we're, we're often talking about ethical guidelines that people want to follow. Those can overlap with morality, but they may not, right? So a behavioral ethicist might not study people's beliefs about abortion, right? That's clearly a moral issue, right? But it's not necessarily something that a behavioral ethicist who studies people in organizations would, would put a lot of at attention on, right? So a behavioral ethicist is most likely to study things like uh, why do people lie, cheat, and steal in the workplace, right? Why do people um, uh, follow some leaders, right, and not follow other leaders? How do, how do organizations shape the ethical behavior of those who are part of them? So it's, it's a more of an applied uh, bent, I think, and uh, a bigger focus on, on concrete, observable behavior. Awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, a moral from psychologist is just fascinated by how people think about morality, right? Yeah. And a behavioral ethicist wants to know, okay, that's fine. But how does that translate to their behavior in organizations? Yeah. Cause you could think or feel something. You can think and feel things. Yeah. You think and feel, but you do something else because a context isn't cool with it, right? Yep. Absolutely. And coming from the, the perspective of a business school, like, like I do, you know, I think there's the, uh, the emphasis on, uh, practicality sometimes. And I just think sometimes we use yeah. that word or that phrase behavioral ethics or, or something along those lines, just because it sounds more practical, right? And it maybe is more justifiable right. than saying moral psychology when, when really they're very closely aligned and, and really are looking at things maybe from a slightly different angle. Um, but certainly there's a lot of overlap there. Um, so you've been studying this, this field for, for some time now you did your postdoc and, um, and then you uh, tell us a little bit more about what, how'd you end up to where you are right now? Sure. Before I do, let me just put one more, one more uh, idea down about behavioral ethics. The behavioral means something else as well. Um, you can contrast behavioral ethics against normative ethics. So normative ethics is something that a philosopher might do. It's about how we ought to think, what we ought to do. 
right? Um, what's the right ethical system that, that gets us to doing the right thing? Uh, behavioral ethics, by comparison, is about, regardless of how people ought to do these things, why do they think and act in the way they do, right? And so, in, a behavioral, in the realm of behavioral ethics, oughts usually are off the table um, in, in favor of studying how people regularly do think and act uh, around ethics and morality. But at the so, same time, um, don't, don't we need to figure out how people ought to act too? I, I think so. I mean, that I feels think, and I think, so loaded. That feels so loaded. Because, right, there's just like the and cognitive behavioral therapy, right? They'll talk about like the should messages. You should versus the could messages. Right. And, and then this idea, I think, of like, is there a greater truth that exists outside the individuals that we might need to aspire to, right? Absolutely. I mean, the truth is, right, that people who study moral psychology and behavioral ethics, I think, do so because there is this um, underlying assumption that there are, there are better and worse ways to act in the world, and we want to study why people act in better ways. Well, if you say that, then you are committing yourself to something uh, a little more, a little more uh, concrete than relativism, right? And the relativism piece is what's kind of implied by the idea that we're just studying how people do act, but I think, in fact, people uh, do have a, a base assumption that we should be in organizations trying to understand why people, you know, do ethical things and why they do unethical things and then try to shape our organizations and our leaders and our people in those organizations to do the ethical things. Who's having that conversation in an organization? Because I want to sit next to their cubicle. <laughs> I think that's a really good question. Um, I think people are having those conversations in organizations all the time, maybe without realizing it. But anytime an organization sits down to, to decide on value, we value our, our customers over our profits, or we value our profits over our customers. We value our people. We value all of those things that, 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 that encourage us to think about values. Those are ethical questions, whether we recognize them or not. Because yeah. what we're doing as an organization or a person in that organization is defining what we, the organization, see as good. Right. And I think sometimes, oftentimes, that happens in organizations through the decisions that are made, for example, about people, right? So if I de am deciding who I'm promoting in the organization, for example, if I'm promoting the person who values profit and uh, sales above all else, trampling others on the way to get there, then I'm making a, uh, a some sort of value statement about what the organization, what the organization's leaders uh, care about. And that, in a way, is certainly an ethical choice, I would argue. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's really important to, uh, to bring this out, which is that we may be facing ethical choices all the time, even if we don't see the ethics involved in it, right? And mm -hmm. so, uh, one concept that, that gets thrown around a lot in this literature is moral awareness. And moral awareness uh, is the idea that we can be more or less aware of the moral implications in front of us, right? And of course, if we're more aware of the implications of the choices uh, we face, we're more likely to uh, make a decision in line with our ethics and values. But sometimes we become blind to the ethics, right? Or we can rationalize or convince ourselves that uh, this thing that maybe in, an, in another state of mind we would recognize we shouldn't do, it's unethical to do, we're very good at tricking ourselves, telling ourselves a story that allows us to free ourselves from that moral awareness, right? 
and, and reconstrue the act in a way that allows us, gives us, gives ourselves permission to do something that we might not otherwise do, or we might not tell someone else they should do uh, in a different state. Yeah. And it's just, I, it's just fascinating to me, you know, the, the lengths that we can go through inside our minds to justify our behavior. And, Absolutely. you know, I think it's, it's even that in some ways is, is indicative, at least to me of, you know, this idea that there, there is some sort of truth, right? A kind of this idea that we, we do have a sense of how we ought to be if we're having to rationalize it even to ourselves. Um, we, I, I just think that that's a fascinating um, thing that we do, right? You're right. If we, didn't, if we didn't care about morality, we wouldn't need to rationalize because right. that's better what are you rationalizing away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is one of the on, on the, you know, the question of why was this, why is this topic so fascinating to me? Thinking in moral terms, being able to think about right and wrong, good and bad, being able to, uh, you know, puzzle through a dilemma. It's a pretty uniquely, as far as we know, it's a pretty uniquely human trait. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as far as I know, my cat just does what it wants and it never takes time to reflect on, well, that's what I want, but what should I do? right? <laughs> Humans have that ability. And so for me, um, you know, the, the deep questions, I mean, think about religious systems. We just came out of Eastern Passover. Religious systems are deeply moral systems uh, that, that people use to solve moral p- problems and answer moral questions. Um, think about the arts. Think about all the operas and the ballets and think about uh, novels and, and great works of fiction and great works of, of uh, you know, all kinds of art and music is around moral questions, right? Um, and then think about the, the conversations we have every day. Uh, we're talking about, it's very easy for us to moralize any number of issues out in the world. And we do speak in moral terms about um, things that matter, right? Mm-hmm. Vaccination, masks, look at all that, <laughs> right? On one level, those are public health issues, on another level, the conversation's being had in moral ways. And so, uh, to me, um, I think you're right, Ben, that, that morality is so deep-seated. We rationalize because we do care about morality, and morality is everywhere, right? It's just that we may not always be aware when we're, when we're, when we're doing it. Yeah. Well, let me throw this out here. There's, I've never been to an organization that has, like, a chief virtue officer. There is, right. there is there are a, chief a new innovation, officers. chief yeah. ethics officers, the other CEO. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's how, that's very uncommon. Yes. Right? Like, you know, and when we think about this in like classical literature, there's the idea of Rasputin, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the evil ethical person whispering in the ear of the leader and causing bad magical outcomes for a bunch of stuff. But in most organizations that I'm in, and I've never been in one that has a, ethics officer except some in the medical field right but that's like a whole like malpractice side but you know they may have values right they may say these are the behaviors and how we live out these values within the organization but generally what i see and hey i resonate with this as a somebody that comes from a project management background where you have okrs and objectives and margin goals you have to hit and all of these kinds of things. And generally, I see any kind of moral or ethics fly out the window 
in service of whatever those goals that rate somebody, whether they get promoted, whether they get a bonus, whether they get to keep their job. And I guess I would just point out that the decision to let those ethics fly out is an ethical choice. The decision to say that we're going to prioritize those other things over, you know, aligning with our, our core ethical values or over taking care of our people or whatever it is, that is an ethical choice. Now, the person who makes that choice may not want to confront that reality because, boy, that doesn't feel good to be the guy who's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this ethical choice and I'm going to choose profits over people. But it is an ethical choice. And so I think this, is, this goes back to what I was saying. I think that organizations are constantly having conversations about ethics, even if they're not using the language of ethics and they're not aware uh, that what they're doing is, is making ethical choices. Well, just think about how you'd be explicit about that. Hi, I'm, say, Dell Computers. Right. And we're going to sell you a computer that works, nine, you know, 97% of the computers we send out here are going to work for you. The rest of you will get a refund in the following ways. But if you have to call in, you're going to wait 30 to 45 minutes. And we might do anything in as much as this percentage of actuarial. And you might get what you want. So would you like to roll the dice with Dell? <laughs> <laughs> you you, right? must, be an, you what, must be an Apple guy. Right. No, I, I mean, I use, they're all trash. All technologies <laughs> trash. But, but this is the thing is that there's a profit that drives that stuff. Right. And a lot of times these ethical things don't have to happen if you have high manufacturing standards. But the rub comes for that one or 2% of clients you might have to do the right thing for that hurts your bottom line. That, um, outlier that maybe had um, their parental leave needed to extend because something catastrophic was happening with their newborn or right. The, these are the places there. And everybody starts, I see them like wringing their hands because, whoa, this is out of scope. We don't right. have a moral playbook, right? For these things that we don't have explicit policy on. Well, and I think one of the things that the response from, you know, people over in my camp who are trying to encourage a focus on ethics is, is this concept of doing well by doing good, right? That, that organizations should think about the ways that they can live up to the ethical values that they espouse and not throw profits out the window, right? But, but, be, but understand, right, that, that there may be some natural connection between doing things you know, the right way in an ethical sense and doing things well in a business sense. And we hope that's true, right? Because when, when I tell people, you know, I teach a class in business ethics, one of the common responses is, oh, isn't that an oxymoron? I hope not, because if it is, right, you just have sort of this, this uh, self-perpetuating organization that, that sort of runs on its own greed. And I think that there is some truth to that. We see that, right? But I don't think every organization is like that. And I do think organizations, most of them, aspire to be something more than that. Whether they fall short is another question. But I think, um, I, I think it would be hard-pressed to find key people within organizations uh, who will say out loud, when it comes down to it, if my ethical principles are out of line with profits, it's going to be my profits every time. Yeah. Yeah. So... What I'd like to move to now is, you know, a lot of the, the research, a lot of the writing in this area, um, there's kind of a whole segment of it that looks at, you know, kind of why people or understanding how people 
maybe even good people, quote unquote, do bad things. And again, you know, quote unquote, bad things. Um, so, you know, obviously there's the whole question of what is bad, what is good. And that's kind of what we were talking about um, a minute ago anyway. But uh, and then there's the, the whole topic of whether or not people have agency. Do we actually make choices about our behavior um, versus some of the uh, perspectives coming from neurobiology um, versus I would kind of add another one, which is the more situational approach, which is we are defined. Our behavior is completely defined by our, our situations. You put a good person in a bad situation and or, you know, th these certain constraints or these certain types of incentives will make that person do bad things. Um, let, let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. Where do you want to start? Hmm. Well, define uh, bad. Let's start with what is bad. <laughs> what is bad? Eric's right, going to tell everybody's us. Everybody's like, wait, if everything's <laughs> relative, right? I, I love people. It's like, I'm a pacifist. And I'm like, well, let me punch you in the face and steal your iPod and see how pacifist you are. Well, I'd call the cops. Oh, you're going to get somebody to do violence on your behalf? Okay. I don't know if real pacifists actually exist. But when we take this to, to the realm of morality, of what is good? What is bad? Oh, well, that depends on how I feel that day. Well, how does a professional that explores these topics think about good and bad? I mean, that's kind of, yeah, what do you think? It's a huge question. Well, yeah, I didn't know we were going to get there so soon. All right, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> so look, you said you don't think there are real pacifists. I actually, I think there are very few real relativists. And I think it's very fashionable. People like to throw around this idea that, uh, oh, I'm a relativist, you know, you do you, this kind of thing. I don't think so. Um, and in, in, my, in my class, I, I try to disarm people from this by saying, if, if you're a real relativist, what that means is, you know, pick something horrendous that you think is, is terrible, right? Um, uh, you know, Hitler! Child. Everybody says Hitler. When it's okay, bad, it's let's Hitler. let's do it. All right. If Hitler. you're a relativist, you have to say that there is no way to morally differentiate between Hitler's Germany and the Holocaust, and a country that uh, didn't proceed that way, and a country that takes care of its people and, and welcomes people uh, into, into its land. Let's say that. If, if, if you're a relativist, you have to say, and I say, which of those is better? You have to say, I don't know. And if you're uncomfortable with that, if that bothers you, if that doesn't sit right, it probably means you're not a relativist. It probably means somewhere behind that screen is some underlying assumption within you about what is right and what is wrong, how we should be and how we shouldn't be. So, you know, what is bad? Well, the, the psychologist in me wants to say, the first place you start is, well, what do people perceive as bad? What are the common things that people will perceive as bad? So some, some uh, psychologists over the last 20, 25 years have done some work on trying to understand cross-culturally what are the things that kind of trigger our moral sensibilities. And, and one of them that's very universal is violations of care or harming people intentionally. When you harm people intentionally, most people in most countries, regardless of their political orientation, will say, that's bad. That's an immoral thing. Uh, if you violate justice, that's another one that seems to be a candidate, again, a candidate for some kind of universal. There are other things that uh, only certain people uh, sort of use as moral foundations. So, for example, if you look at we have harm and fairness as universals, but if you look at things like uh, honoring authority, uh, maintaining purity, or uh, being loyal to your in-group, those are foundations that some people weight more heavily than others, right? So are, they, across are, we countries, in height, 
Are we in Jonathan Haidt? We land? are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, okay. I'm giving. Uh, this is this is my weasel way of getting out More. of telling you what's bad. Uh, but uh, what I can tell you is that acts going to organizations. If an if an organization goes out and causes intentional knowing harm to people, that will be judged as bad, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's not a bad guess as to what uh, might be a normative version of of what is bad behavior on the part of an organization. Sure. Yeah. So, but if, when you're looking at that, okay, that's a norm. But you know, somebody might say, "Is Hitler worse than you know your grandma that makes the best?" chocolate chip cookies and lemonade on the face of the planet well they might say well it doesn't matter because we could get hit by an asteroid tomorrow and these are all constructs right so so what do we talk how do we think about is that we're constructing this morality versus maybe an idea of morality being universal sure what do we think what do i think (laughs) i think it's okay i think it's okay if we're constructing it if, if it turns out that um, morality is, uh, at least on some dimensions, an agreed-upon contract, con- contract across people, right, whereby we can go to a social contract, right, whereby I say, hey, you know, Chris, I'm going to give up my right to intentionally cause you harm, and I'm going to try really hard at that, and in return, you're going to give up that right to intentionally cause me harm. If it's just that, some kind of social contract we fell into long ago, I think that's okay, right? It, 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 it may not be, it may be flimsier than what we would hope. It may not be that rock of morality, but it's still pretty strong. And as I said earlier, people are thinking about this stuff, talking about this stuff, acting in ways uh, that show that they believe in some notion of morality, I think, all the time. Yeah, mm. the, here, and here's the thing that I just want to say to listeners, because I hear this all the time. Well, it's a construct. Well, nations are just a construct. Right. They help the us dollar's get a construct. Along. The dollar's a construct, but nobody's like, well, they wouldn't take my Lily Pushins at Best Buy when I needed an HDMI cable. Right. You know, guess what else is a construct? Hey, let's agree that everybody drive on the right side, or if you're in some countries, the left side of the road. Yeah. Does somebody say like, oh my gosh, these constructs are really getting me down, man. Dri- us all driving on the right side of the road? What? <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's, as a psychologist, right, when I think about people wanting to, to sort of hide behind, oh, morality is just a construct. I mean, I think that oftentimes that's, that's a way of saying morality can be kind of a bummer because it tells us we can do, it tells us not to do things we might want to do, or it makes us kind of think about our own actions and, and you know, evaluate them. Um, that that can be kind of a that can be kind of restrictive. People don't like restrictions on what they want to do, and so when you hear people say, "Oh, it's just morality, just a construct," I think some of that is granting some permission not to take it as seriously as you might if you're saying that morality comes from uh, this this you know source, right? Whatever that mm-hmm. source is. And and just to be clear, I'm I'm fairly agnostic with respect to where morality comes from. It may just be a construct. That's fine. Uh, I think it's still very, very important. And I, and I wouldn't want to live, I don't think I'd want to live in a world where uh, people acted as if they only saw morality as a mere construct, right? Mm-hmm. I think people constrain their behavior in line with morality sufficiently enough to point to the fact that they take it fairly seriously. This is the horror movies, right? Hey, there's one day or one night where everybody gets to kill whoever they want to. And dear God, you can't build a... 
This is what I want to say to a lot of people. You can't build a society anyone would want to inhabit except a rank psychopath with the no rules approach or no constructs approach to living. Yeah. This is the the flagrant libertarian. Oh, it's so libertarian. I could walk next door and just shoot everybody there and drink their milk because I, I needed a cup of milk to make brownies this afternoon. Like that, that doesn't work. Absolutely. And we want to construct it. I mean, the other thing I, the other thing I want to point out, right, is that that view that morality is kind of a bummer, right? It's this thing that keeps us from doing what we want, I think is limiting. I mean, the very same psychology that, uh, that introduces restrictions on our behavior because of morality is involved in how we decide what we actually value in life and what we want to go after, right? How we live a purposeful, meaningful life. That is a moral question, right? And so I think when people understand that morality isn't just about thou shalt and thou shalt not, but it's also about trying to identify within yourself how you prioritize different values, what you want, what makes for a life well-lived and what makes for a day well-lived. That's all morality too. And that stuff, you know, you, you pay life coaches to help you with that. Um, <laughs> and so, so I, think, I think understanding that morality is both of those things is really important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think there's tremendous, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. It's not necessarily a freedom, but a, a, um, I would say there's, there's something very good about having a set of things that I know I shall not do. Right. Um, because it, it enables me and it puts me on a path to doing things that are very good in the long term for my own happiness and well-being and for the happiness and well-being of a lot of people around me. You know, so for example, I am a faithful husband and that allows me to have a good marriage, which is pretty awesome for me, for my wife. I, we can go ask her. I don't know, but I think she's pretty happy with me right now. Um, and, mixed uh, reviews coming in from Lindsay right now. For, yeah, mixed <laughs> reviews. We'll see. <laughs> um, you know, for for my children and for and I would argue also for you know broader swaths of society, it is helpful to have that type of um, that moral choice, I suppose, to to prioritize something um, that it's not easy. But in the long run, it is, um, you know, very valuable. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the biology here, right? So if you just teleported a bunch of primordial ooze onto a planet, right? I would say, right, it seems to me from the stuff that I've read, I'm no means the experts you are, that, right, we selected for people that cooperated because we could secure chow and water for ourselves, Right. Um, and like, you know, if you're going to be in a band, you can't have a drummer that doesn't keep time because he rejects the construct of time. So you can't even have music. Everything is freedom through constraints rather than just free. There is no freedom without constraints. It, it just doesn't, it, it's chaos. And so, you know, when we think about the physical stuff in our noggins that gets along or not along with other physical stuff and other people's noggins. How do we think about like our choice and who we are as people and just our rank neurobiology, what's floating around in, in between our ears? So I think you're right to point to um, a lot of people in evolutionary neuroscience have, have tried to account for things like cooperation or seemingly altruistic behaviors through things like group selection or um, 
natural selection, the very processes you're talking about. And so I think there, there, there are good reasons to believe that cooperation and if morality is only in the service of facilitating cooperation, well, that, that's, a big, that's a big lift, right? And so, um, so I, 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 I'm okay with thinking about uh, the selection pressures that would have um, brought us to, to consider others, to do things that are not merely in our short-term self-interest. Um, I think that that's probably something our brains do fairly, fairly readily and fairly easily. Um, you know, the nature uh, underneath your question is that sort of nature nurture thing about where, where morality comes from or character comes from. And my sort of boring answer to that is I, I, I tend to think of, of morality in the way I would think of any personality trait, which is, um, some of it's heritable and some of it's learned, right? And I don't think we can be much more precise than that. And I don't think it matters. I mean, you know, sometimes when people say, oh, it's, it's, it's a developmental phenomenon, as if somehow developmental phenomena are just easy to turn on and turn off. They're not. They're, you know, that's why people go to, to therapy, right? They're trying to undo, oftentimes, something that uh, through development and, and a combination of biology, something that's, that's not working for them. Right, and they don't know how to undo it, and so uh, w whether you know how we want to parse the nature and the nurture isn't as important to me as just acknowledging that this stuff is pretty deep seated in our psychology. I don't know if that gets to your question, Chris, but that's that's sort of where my head went in response to what you said. No, and I, I think about I heard an interview with Paul Bloom once where he's like, "Hey, listen, parents worry all the time, but outside of just feeding and you know not beating the tarnation out of your kid every day, you know." Like a lot of these kids are just going to kind of go, but as a parent, it's not helpful necessarily necessarily to think about. Well, you know what? There's not much I can do as a parent, according to some scientists. So I'm just going to let them float. Hey, could you imagine turning to your kid, Ben, and be like, Damien, what do you need? I fed you today, and I told you I love you twice. Could you now go prosper? Right? We you can't do that as a parent and a family. And you know what? You can't do that in your organization either. I, I told you I needed this much profit because I just bought a yacht. You know, I got one of those oligarch ships cheap <laughs> that came out on the market, right? And so get to work, you sales team, right? Like that's not, now you're right. Some of those guys, you might have just, well, you know, HR just pulled these guys over. You could select through some moral questions during the interview, Right. But you can't just it's not good to just say, well, let's see where the shift ship sails to if we let go of the steering wheel. That's right. Cool. All right. So we talked about what's bad. We kind of talked about choice and neurobiology. So why should we care about this? I mean, we, we think about this. We feel this. We feel this in a workplace when we see something like, man, that's so unfair that that's going down or that guy got promoted because he's the CEO's son or. You know, we have these ideas of moral injury that might happen due to COVID response and some of the stuff, if you're a nurse and seeing some of the stuff's go as far as policy. So you have all that stuff going around on our noggins, really interesting to talk about, but why should we care? We have to care. I mean, it's, it's the language we speak. It's how we think. Um, part of, part of, um, what we're doing every day is not just observing the world passively and saying that's interesting, right? We're saying, 
I like that. I don't like that. That's good. That's bad, right? And I think that I think that we, as I've said, ethics is is constantly there. And so, as as people who are interested in organizations and how organizations work, understanding this really fundamental part about how your people are orienting toward their day, right? Understanding how they're going through and making choices, right? And making value trade-offs. Understanding what you as the organization can do to help them uh, work through those problems. Or when they really are faced with some sort of dilemma that they aren't sure how to, they don't feel they have the, the skills to be able to resolve, how can we as an organization or leaders within organizations help our people to wrestle with those things? I mean, one of the things that... Um, you know, when I teach when I teach my ethics class, so I teach to military officers at the Naval Postgraduate School. What we're doing is is reps and sets, right? Um, but we're not doing it for our our bodies, right? We're we're going through. We're taking this class. We're learning ethical traditions. We're considering cases in ethics. We're considering dilemmas, not because it's it crucial that we get an answer to this dilemma that you will probably never face. But so that when you do face a dilemma, and you will, you know what to do, right? Your, your ethical apparatus, your, your moral psychology, your way of being able to, to recognize values and understand value trade-offs, that that's ready for you. So that, you know, you'll never know when you're going to need it. Uh, but the hope is, and there's not a lot of great data that suggests we're, we're doing well on this, but the hope is that those students who come out of those classes, who come out of a, a concentrated period of time where they really think about this stuff, will be different people when they face ethical choices than they would have been without those classes. That's the hope. That's awesome. You know, one thing that I think about is, you know, in the past, it feels like, at least to me, and maybe this is just me getting old and curmudgeon but in the, you know, it feels like in the past 10, 15 years that things have not gotten better with regard to uh, thinking through morality, being thoughtful in how we interact with each other, um, you know, building up a society versus trying to tear it down and make sure that your side wins, those types of things. Um, is there, I guess, what's the role maybe of um, the type of education that you're doing or other types of, how, how do we get better? How do we try to turn this thing around a little bit if you think we're go if you agree with me that we're perhaps not going in the best direction right now I'll just grant that assumption um, <laughs> and do I, I I do on a gut level I agree with you although you know you see books like Stephen Pinker's the better angels yep. of our natures I was totally thinking that one he's, he's totally. trying to argue that actually if you look over history, we're better than we've ever been, right? Yeah. And things are getting better. But let's lay that aside because I, I, even if, you know, even if Pinker's right, there's clearly areas of life where you look at them and you say, wow, we seem to be kind of degrading here. Yeah. So what do we do? I, I believe, I believe that slowing people down, right? Reminding people how to think, reminding people how to step back from a problem think about it, understand it through different lenses is a really, really valuable skill. I think that um, the tendency to constantly be moving fast and, and break things to, to steal a, a, a corporate motto is not conducive with uh, living sort of a reflective ethical life. And I'm not saying being, you know, being as good as you can be. I'm just saying being someone who goes through life in a reflective state 
who uh, recognizes choices when they're in front of them and, and who tries to make the best choice, right? That, that kind of thinking, I think it just at the, at the bare minimum, is really necessary, I think, for encouraging ethical behavior. And I think that probably societally, uh, between, you know, tweets and Snapchats and all these sorts of things, and I, I don't want to be that curmudgeon either, Ben, but, <laughs> but it is, I think, pushing our cognition more toward uh, quick reactionary kinds of things. And it's really hard to make sound reflective choices, ethical or otherwise, when everything's coming at you in light speed and you feel like you constantly have to, to react. So I think step one would be if organizations, if societies want to get smart about this stuff, there needs to be built-in reflection. We need to give people opportunities to reflect, to think, not just to do and react, but to reflect. I mean, the, in some sense, the essence of moral psychology is reflection. It's, there's this thing, what do I think about it? Is it good or is it bad? Right? Um, I want this, but what should I do? Right? All of that is reflective, and it's the essence, I think, of, of morality. So, I guess that's where I would start. Yeah. Come no, on, I, guys. I, Curmudgeons <laughs> of the world unite. <laughs> unite. Because think, think about yes. Think about and you gotta own that identity. So, but th think about every Patsy saying, move fast and break things. Jack Welch, oh well, we'll fire the bottom whatever percent. Um, lean in. All of these things are so attractive to our minds, I think, because it allows us to shortcut the disciplined long-term thinking that leads to the promised land and instead gives us an excuse to do what our, like, I don't know, amygdala brain, I don't know, whatever part of that brain that wants you to eat 12 cookies instead of just one, that part of your brain to just do whatever you want in the business space. Do whatever what you want in the workplace. You know what? I just fired him. I don't care. We'll pay them extra money. And, and all of it breaks your culture. It breaks your mindset because there's very few situations in a business environment. And I've and been and I've been in these situations. Everybody feels the house is on fire. And, you know, we've deployed and we're like, wait, nobody's shooting at us right now. We can take the time right. to do the moral thinking work about how we're going to do here. Make sure that we're pointing this train track in the right direction and then we can go fast. Yeah. Right? I 100% yeah. agree with you. Yeah. So I love the idea of slowing down. Uh, there's just a lot that I like about that. And, it, you know, the idea of the examined life, right? Um, being more thoughtful. Uh, one interesting thing that comes to mind is, you know, um, not too long ago, um, as of this recording, it was probably about a week ago, uh, another social psychologist, Jonathan Hype, uh, had an article in The Atlantic that published, um, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it's, it, the title of it is Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And it was interesting because he talks a lot about how we share things on social media. And one suggestion in kind of the what might we do about it thing, um, I believe came from some uh, software engineer or someone said, you know, maybe, it, you know, the, well, one person talked about the, the invention of the retweet, right, as being something is like, hey, we just we just gave a loaded gun to a four-year-old, right? This is not good. And the other piece being that maybe, you know, when we share things on Facebook, maybe at the third time it's shared, perhaps you actually have to copy and paste it to put it back in, or just some sort of mechanism to slow people down and make them think about stuff before they take those actions. So I, I, I really think that that's a, a good suggestion. Um, what are some other things maybe that we could think about that might help us kind of nudge ourselves um, or people around us 
uh, towards maybe making a, or at least having a, an increased probability of making some better ethical decisions? The, yeah, because famous... those are all structural things, right? Right. You know, it's not that we don't allow a retweet. We just say, hey, we're going to slow that roll so you can't have a million retweets in 20 minutes, right? Um, structural issues might be, yeah, you could still kick in my door at my house, but that's a big, that's a way bigger step than just being able to turn the knob and find it unlocked, right? So, so I guess like Ben, right, you're asking kind of like, what are some of these structural things? Or maybe it's even broader than that. Not even necessarily structural, right? Like, I mean, one thing is just like the advice, slow down, right? If I'm a leader who wants saying, I I buy it, Eric, I want to be a better person. I'm going to turn my life around now that I've heard this episode. Um, I really want to do the right thing. And, you know, being thoughtful and slowing down sounds like a good thing I can do. Um, What else might I think about? The famous Nobel laureate uh, Daniel Kahneman and his, his colleague Amos Tversky sort of revolutionized uh, the space of judgment decision making. Mm-hmm. And they weren't necessarily talking about moral judgment decision making. They're just talking about how can we be better thinkers. Kahneman has this idea that um, becoming a better thinker is not that different from becoming a good golfer. The golf swing is not a natural thing our bodies do. Right, and if you swing the club in a way that feels really natural, you're not going to hit the ball very far or very straight. Right. So what Kahneman says is, well, thinking well is like that. You have to train your habits of mind to be able to do that, to get out of what we would normally default to, and and do the golf swing. Well, I think mm. ethical thinking and and living an ethical life is very similar. Um, attending to your habits, attending to not just. Um, the things you habitually do, but what are the things in your environment that tend to cue you to do things that maybe you don't want to do, right? So if you, if you came to me and said, hey, I want to lose 15 pounds, uh, but I'm really bad at sticking to my diet, one of the things I'd say is, well, the research is very, very clear. Find the things in your house that make you break the diet and get them out of your house. Don't rely on your willpower, right? Because your willpower is never there when you most need it. Um, so that is when you're faced with a temptation. So get those cookies out of your house. Well, I think the same is true in the moral domain, right? If you, if you, if you attend to your habits, if you identify the things you'd like to be able to change, uh, in the moral sphere about yourself and understand sort of when am I most likely to fall short of where I want to be? What causes me to do those things? And then make some conscious choices out of the heat of the moment right? That allow you to better manage that. But I think a bad strategy for any kind of uh, self-change or self-improvement is to depend wholly on your willpower, okay? (laughs) Because the more you use it, right, the theory is the less there is in the subsequent time you need it. So, um, come up with better habits, right? And come up with uh, environmental or or structural things and help, help your people come up with those environmental or structural things that will allow them to develop and practice new habits. Yeah. So that's yeah. sort of a, that's, that's behavioral science, but that's also Aristotle. <laughs> Love the combination. That's great. Um, okay. So we've, we've talked about kind of, we've, we've ran the full gamut here talking about kind of what behavioral ethics is. We talked about moral psychology. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, different ways to think about those types of, of items, what bad means and might mean. 
Um, I guess maybe touch a little bit more on, or I'm curious to know what you think about, you know, the, the situational approach, right? Because uh, some people who study ethics or morality, they may uh, think of, oh, yes, the Stanford prison experiment, right? Which was uh, a set of experiments that were done um, by Philip Zimbardo uh, a couple decades ago. And, uh, you know, since then, there have been various methodological critiques of of how it went and all that kind of stuff. And um, But, you know, one of the things that came out of that was this idea that, uh, you know, you could take a good person and they will do bad things if you put them in the wrong situation. I guess, first of all, I'm curious to know, since you you seem to approach things from a, a bit of a more of a, I guess, a personal choice type of perspective, or at least you, you have a great paper that's forthcoming in the Journal of Business Ethics. We'll post um, the citation to that as well in the show notes, um, where you have this uh, this idea of the uh, the lens through which you can view these types of problems. Um, how do you kind of make sense of those two in juxtaposition, right? So your, your personal agency, things I have control over and can do differently versus these situations I might find myself in, in which uh, you know, am I helpless in those situations? How do you square those two? Right. Well, situationism and, and social psychology, which is, which is a strong adherent of situationism, mm-hmm. uh, the history there, I think, is important. Uh, so a lot of those famous studies that were calling our attention to the power of the situation were inspired by scholars looking at the Holocaust yep. and saying, how could this have happened, Right. Um, how, how could, you know, Hannah Arendt goes to Jerusalem and she listens to uh, Adolf Eichmann testify and she was expecting him to be this horrendous monster and her observation was he just sounded like a bureaucrat, right? And from that she writes a book, The Banality of Evil. Evil's really banal, right? It doesn't take much. You put a, a decent person in the right conditions and they will, uh, you know, it's, it's the bad bad barrels, right? Is, is unethical behavior because you have a few bad apples or do you have the barrels that are kind of rotting the apples? And so uh, bad barrels was the story for, for a long time. It's totally oversimplified though. I mean, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Situations can shape how we perceive what we're facing and what we do in that situation. But we also have uh, habitual habits of mind, right? We have uh, dispositional ways of orienting towards the world that also shape that thing. And so I I see the situational forces, the structural forces, the personal forces, they're two sets of variables in a very long equation that uh, explains why people do what they do. And uh, to to say that we should only be focused on, on the situation, I think, is missing a big part of the equation. But to say that all that matters is individual character is missing the reality that we all know from our own experience that despite our best intentions, we can oftentimes find ourselves doing things that we would not want ourselves to do, right? And if, mm-hmm. if all it was was personal choice and character, that shouldn't happen. So um, for me, I think we need to understand all of it. And one of my gripes with the field is that the field of, for example, of moral psychology or the field of behavioral ethics fundamentally is trying to understand why do people think and do what they think and do in the moral domain, right? That's the question. If you want to answer that question, you have to account for all of these different explanations. You can't just say we're only going to focus on the situational forces because, you know, that works. works. It's great work. Um, It's kind of sexy, right? This idea that 
you can drop somebody in the wrong conditions and all of a sudden, right, they change who they are. You know, you show people the Milgram experiment and you tell them two thirds of people went all the way to the end of the shockboard, even when they thought the guy was, he was non-responsive, he might as well be, be dead. Okay, but, but one, third third, didn't. One, one third didn't. So how do we make sense of that, right? How do we make mm -hmm. sense of that? And I think you need to account for, for all of it. Yeah, yeah. That's why people are losing their minds on airplanes, right? You know, we don't know. Was it COVID stress? They drank too much at the airport bar. We don't know, but we know in aggregate that people are being jerks to stewards and stewardesses on planes right now. Mm -hmm. And that, like, that's kind of that emergent property that comes out of a moral landscape that we can shape as individuals, but also for people that have like authority within an organization. So, so we, that's kind of like an awesome way to look at it from the individual level. But if you're a manager or a VP or a director in an organization, how might you use some of this knowledge around moral thinking and behavioral ethics to shape how your organization works and, and how that might make it more likely for people to be that one-third rather than that two-third? So something we've touched on but haven't gone into much depth on is how easily, when we were talking about rationalization, how easily people can lose sight of the ethics of a particular choice they're facing, right? Which sort of psychologically frees them up to do something they might not otherwise do. I think if an organization or a leader within an organization is serious about trying to encourage ethical behavior, they need to be really aware of the various ways organizations can unwittingly or perhaps intentionally encourage what's known as uh, ethical blind spots, right? Ethical blind spots in their, in their employees, right? So you'd have to be thinking about things like, what are we actually incentivizing, right? As an organization, why do people work? Well, they work for lots of different reasons, but one of them is incentives, right? They want, they want uh, pay, they want benefits, they want promotion, whatever it is for them. Well, if you set up the incentive system in such a way, people are, there's a really famous paper, I'm sure Ben's taught it, right? On the folly of rewarding X while hoping for Y or A while hoping for B. I yep. don't remember what the, what the variables are. It's A and B, are. yep. <laughs> a and B, right? Okay. What's the whole point of that? Look, organizations will say that they want behavior A, right? But they're actually, when you look at it, rewarding behavior B. And A and B are at odds with each other. So, you know, organizations say they want to promote safety, but in fact, what they're rewarding is that the group gets through the checklist as quickly as possible, right? Uh, uh, universities say they want to promote learning, but what are they actually rewarding, right? They're rewarding test performance and things like that. So, so as an organization, you want to be aware of where, what are, where are the payoffs in your organization? What would a rational actor go after if they were just following the incentive structure and what moral hazards might that create, right? If you, if you reward people based upon the number of con sales contracts they sign, not on the number of customers who come back happy, right? That's going to encourage potentially two different kinds of behavior, right? Where the deal is, let's just close because closing is what I get rewarded for. The long-term health of this relationship, the long-term health of, of the organization not really incentivized and therefore people just don't follow it. And they don't follow it not because they're bad people or anything like that. They're following it because 
They don't follow it because they're rational and they're saying, well, I could do that, but it's not gonna get me where I wanna go. What's gonna get me where I wanna go is this. So organizations need to sort of own up to that. And the fact that if they are incentivizing things that are at odds with their own values and ethics, they're part of the problem. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, so, you know, one thing I'm wondering, and, uh, you know, this is kind of more about you, Eric, right? So, you know, you've been studying these things for a while, and I wonder how your perspectives maybe have changed, or are there any things that you've learned or things, perspectives you've gained as you've done this type of research that have influenced your way of interacting with other people, making decisions? Um, how's it impacted you? When I started studying this stuff, I was, I was pretty strongly in the ethics is just about situations, right? So I was, I was, I was you know, following the company line of, of social psychology and, and, you know, people are basically irrational and they don't think deeply about this stuff and you put them in one situation and they'll think this way and you put them in another situation, they'll think that way and boy, how flimsy their moral principles are and aren't people just kind of Right. I mean, I think I think there was I think that that was a um, a popular place to be for a while. And I think mm. that as I've studied ethics more, I think that as I've interacted with philosophers and theologians and people who take this stuff really really seriously, and they really there's there, there's some real skin in the game. As a psychologist who studies ethics, you don't necessarily have skin in the game because you just want to know what do people do, and I'll leave it to the philosophers to fret about it. Right, mm. but the philosophers and the theologians they do fret about it and they think about this stuff. And and as you, I think as you get older, um, as I work with students at, at MPS now, right, um, military officers who many of whom really really find value in in this kind of content and having the opportunity to think about this, I think I've come to realize that morality really it's not this sort of flimsy kind of um, you know stupid human trick that we can do with, you know, 15 minute experiments where we put people in different conditions and change their mind. People do think in principled ways about this stuff. So, you know, I, I, I when I was at my postdoc, we did, you know, there, it was a, it was a big time to study things like the trolley problem, right? You're probably familiar with this, but for listeners, it's the thought problem that, that uh, imagine you're standing next to a, a train track, right? And there's a trolley coming down, out of control trolley coming down the track. And if you do nothing, it's going to hit five people and kill them with certainty. But you have a choice. Fortunately for you, there's a lever you can pull. And if you pull that lever, you'll divert the trolley. It won't kill the five, but it will kill one person with certainty, right? And the question was, what will people do, okay? And there was a whole enterprise, they call it trolleyology, that came up looking at, oh boy, if we tweak the vignette this way or tweak the vignette that way, right, we can flip people's preferences. So one of the famous ones was, if you ask people, will you pull the lever to divert the trolley, they'll say, two-thirds of them will say, yes, I will. If you reverse it or if you change it so that now what they have to do to save the five is push a heavy guy off a bridge. So the trolley will hit him, killing him, but saving the five, all of a sudden preferences twist, uh, shifted, right? Now people didn't want to do that. Okay, so there was this enterprise that came up of, boy, look at these principles that people seem to have. They're pretty flimsy. My colleagues and I did a study where we gave people a bunch of variations of uh, that trolley problem using what we knew from the literature were uh, variations that would change people's preferences. Now, did it change people's preferences? 
Yeah, by about a half a scale point. But the correlation, if you knew, for example, the correlation of how you resolved uh, a dilemma like this, let's say we know how you resolve two of those dilemmas. How much can we predict how, how well you'll resolve or, or how you'll resolve uh, two other dilemmas? Correlation is huge, right? And if you get, mm. make it up to four, you're looking at correlations of like 0 0.8, 0 0.9. I mean, these are things in the behavioral sciences you never see, right? Um, and so what's the point there? The point is, yes, we can, we can, we can focus on the part of, of people's moral psychology that is sort of flimsy and subject to, um, you know, whatever's in their environment at the moment, or we can focus on the part that's actually quite stable, right? And that they seem to take with them from situation to situation. So I think you need both. And I think that my appreciation over the years of studying this, my appreciation for uh, understanding morality and all of it that, you know, taking both forms of that and understanding the whole picture, I think has made me ever more fascinated with the question. I mean, there aren't many things that I could study for, I started this stuff in like 2007, right? So 15 mm. years, there aren't many things I could study for 15 years and and still be interested in them, and yet morality is one. So I think <laughs> I think that's a big one. I think um, so. That's how my perspectives change. What was the other part of your question, Ben? Has it uh, changed? You know how you make decisions. Has it changed how you behave? Um, you know, I, I I assume you were probably a pretty good good guy uh, before the grad school, but uh, you know, anything that that has uh, has it influenced how you think about life choices or anything like that. We talked about moral awareness, right? And I think that one of the things that definitely has happened is um, my moral awareness has has grown and gotten stronger, right? So, so you put a, a choice in front of me, or you tell me about a choice. It's very easy for my mind to sort of go to, oh, well, here's here are some of the values underlying that choice. Here are some of the trade offs you're going to have to make. Here's the implications of that choice. All of those are just different ways of engaging in some version of moral psychology, right? And so I think that. I think that it's heightened my awareness of those things. By the way, that doesn't mean I'm some kind of moral superhero or that I always do the right thing. I, do you I, still I, feel guilty sometimes? I feel guilty all the time. Uh, uh, not all the time, but uh, my colleague and friend, Taya Cohen at uh, Carnegie Mellon, um, one, of the, one of the many things she's done is she has studied a construct called guilt proneness, which is individual differences in the proneness, the tendency to feel guilt, even anticipatory guilt, even guilt how I would feel if this were to happen, right? And she's shown that, that people's individual differences on, on guilt proneness uh, are related to lots of different things, their behavior in the workplace. Uh, she studied it in prisoners uh, who have, uh, on average, lower guilt proneness than the general population. Uh, and so, yeah, guilt proneness is, and when we study um, uh, moral character and do work together, we very often uh, assess that. So yes, guilt proneness is something that I've learned to see in myself. Um, and, uh, and it's there. Outstanding. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Eric. Uh, really, really appreciated it. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? I think that Again, the, the, the side of morality that often gets lost is, is the side that invites reflection on one's values, what a life well lived means for you, and how do you set up your life uh, to be able to approach those things that you value 
uh, and move away from those things that, that, that detract value. I think that's a really, really important thing. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, it's not just another side of morality. I think it makes you better at the other part of morality, which is actually, um, you know, reasoning about right and wrong, um, thinking about how to resolve ethical dilemmas, etc. So, I think if there's one thing that, that sort of reps and sets idea that why might we want to uh, develop or cultivate um, a, a more acute sense of ethics or morality in our own life, I think if for no other reason, it's a North Star, right? It helps us figure out where we're going, whether we like where we're going, and where we might want to change course if, uh, if we're not headed in the right direction. So, I think there's an awful lot of purpose and, and meaning, I think, that is baked into um, the the practice of thinking ethically, and I, I don't want to. I, I I hate when that gets lost, and that all people think about is the restriction on your behavior, because um, that's a piece of it. But I but I really think a lot of what gives um, purpose and meaning to life is tied up in how we think about issues of of right and wrong, right, good and evil. Um, you know, however we cleave that moral space. I think the other thing to be to be aware of is that. You know, I, it does not take much uh, for disagreements about issues to turn moral, right? Or disagreements about, and I'm, it doesn't just have to be hot button issues. It could be things like, hey, we have to get this project done. Should we do X or Y? Well, I think X. You think Y. What do you mean, right? It, it does not take much for us to turn on that moral psychology and take uh, differences and disagreements and moralize them. And I think, um, you know, being aware of our tendency to do that and also understanding that, that issues carry moral weight for people. So if someone's reacting strongly, it's because there's so much laden, value laden and, and moral stuff underneath that. And I think appreciating that and understanding that their moral understanding is as real and true to them as ours is to us is a really important uh, insight. Outstanding. Well, Eric Helzer, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Indigo Podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.